God bless him. Oh, that is wonderful. Let me pray for us before we get into this. Father, we look at all these flowers and we think of spring and we're so happy to be here on this wonderful, beautiful day. And we think about the light of your kingdom that has come into this world through the powerful uh, just situation, act, or whatever of your going to the cross and rising from the grave. We are so overjoyed that you have loved us that much that you would come into this world and suffer so greatly for us to, to participate in your glory, to understand your kingdom, and to walk with you in this earth. Father, I pray that you would push all darkness out of our hearts this morning, all dark, sad, depressive, anxious, evil thoughts out of our heads this morning, off this property, away from us, so that we can only focus on who you are and what you are to us and the rest of this world. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come this morning And bless us with your presence. I think you already have. It was wonderful to sing those songs to you. We look forward to singing more. And we look forward to the full establishment of your kingdom on this earth in the future. But we want to participate in it right now. We thank you, Father. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Somebody just ran by me. (laughs) Um, Paul begins in... uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in the first two verses, he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Remember that phrase, taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, amen, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. You're going to hear more scripture today in this sermon than you have in probably a month. just want to warn you a little bit. But Paul right here is emphasizing for us the importance of the gospel, right? The importance of the gospel message of which he's about to remind them of as he writes this to to the Corinthians. The good news of Jesus that they've already received, they've already taken in, and on which they have taken their stand in life, that they have, you know, they've placed themselves in. And we all know taking a stand means to sort of come up against something, to weather uh, opposition. It's, in my mind, it gives me that, that image of standing, leaning into the wind so that I'm not blown over, right? And he clearly states that the gospel of Jesus saves you. But if we change the story, if we leave part out, if we compromise it, if we mix it with other philosophies, or if we even just take it too lightly, it, the gospel ceases to have that saving, saving power. It's no longer the gospel, right? And all of this would be in vain. Paul argued the same with the Galatians, uh, when they were toying with the notion of adding requirements to the gospel, yeah, that's what Paul preached, but we want to add these other things. And in Galatians 5.1, he said, it is for freedom. This is kind of redundant, right? But he says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, why else would you be freed to, but in order to be free, right? And he says, and here's that word again, stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Yeah, amen, right? By the way, at 6-8, we love when you shout out amen. 
<laughs> it's, it feels good. Um, so don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The same thought, right? The same thought that we've just heard already, stand firm. Stay pure to the gospel message since if they added anything to it, they would have lost it. It would have been gone. It would have just dissipated, right? Jesus would mean nothing from that point on if they changed the gospel message and freedom would go away. You know, an excerpt, and I'm sure you've heard this, given by Winston, uh, a, a quote by, by, given by Winston Churchill always comes up when you're talking about standing your ground. It's just a great quote. Every pastor in the world has used it. I've used it a number of times, and I'm not embarrassed to use it again. He says, never give in, never give in. He gave this to the, the Harrow School or something like that in 1941, before he was even famous, I think. But he said, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Now, if Paul had said that quote, Paul probably would have said, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small or large or petty, never give in except in the conviction of Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything Paul did was centered around Jesus' death and resurrection, this this gospel message. Because according to the scriptures, this standing firm in the gospel purity is of utmost importance. Of the utmost importance. It's also found in Ephesians 6 where Paul speaks of the spiritual battle that we engage in, we all engage in as Christians. He says, and this is a little lengthy, but he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can what? Stand against the devil's schemes. Take your stand again, right? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. People are never our enemies. The philosophies, the, the, the ideas that are counter to the gospel, the evil in the world that drives sometimes people are our enemies, but not people themselves. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So it is again, stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, do what? Give up, sit down, didn't work. Might as well just, you know, sit this one out. No, he says, after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. All the accusations, all the lies, all the philosophies that don't really work, that are contrary to the gospel message. You can extinguish those with, uh, with this shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we rely on the scriptures. We rely on this story. We rely on this pure gospel. And so after you've done everything, you know, to stand, after you've stand, stood firm, stand firm again, right? Keep standing there. Never give in, never give in, never, 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 right? Same sentiment. Paul follows the first two verses in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians with the purest form of the gospel. I mean, the most simple, like quick little glimpse of what the gospel is. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins. 
according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's the gospel. Christ died for you. And he was raised up from the dead for you. It's pretty simple. And these two verses kind of have it all, don't they? A devotion to the directive and the authoritative nature in our lives uh, that the Scriptures hold, that the Bible holds over us, right? Paul uses according to the Scriptures twice, just in these two verses. The cross, it has the cross in there, that God's pouring out his judgment on Jesus for the sin of all humankind, that justice being paid for, the empty tomb, the conquering of death, the whole spiritual battle won in Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ. It even has discipleship, right? You know, Paul received it. He took it in. Knowing that this was something of such great value, of of such great usefulness, of importance, that it must be passed on to others. So he both becomes a disciple, he becomes a follower, he becomes submissive to the gospel of Christ, uh, you know, as a result of this message, but he also goes and makes disciples of others, right? And if you've been around here long enough, you'll realize that that's a message that we talk about a lot. It's a, it's a message of complete allegiance, that one that we don't keep to ourselves. We give it away, and we think about that, and we talk about that a lot at 6-8. You know, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, his last command, our, great, our, our first concern, right? Then Jesus came to them, and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, better translation maybe, as you were going about life, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you, always to the very end of the age. That's comforting. We would do well, like the Galatians, like the Ephesians, like the Corinthians, to catch this message of such high priority. This isn't just church stuff. This isn't just culture stuff. This is a message of high priority. To realize that the gospel isn't one thing in a list of things important. It's of first importance to all of us. Everybody out there even if they don't admit it, right? It's of first importance, utmost importance. It has the power to save lives. It must be kept pure. It must be in first place. It, it must be become or, or come before all things. The gospel's on its own shelf, Right? Above all else, all other things in life fall in line according with it, accordingly with it, right? Everything is measured against it. The first order business here that Paul says or he talks about is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what everything centers around. Jesus didn't have to earn his authority over me. Never had to do that. But he lovingly exhibits his authority, his care, his grace, his mercy, all those things. He lovingly exhibits his right to be king of my life by his death and resurrection. By the the amount, the, the, the lengths he's willing to go to, right? 
John Wesley stood at his father's deathbed and his dad told him something, uh, you know, in his dying moments, the last thing he ever said to his son, he said, the inward witness, son, the inward witness, this is the proof, the strongest proof of Christianity. In other words, the inward witness, the, the transformed life, how we are changed by Christ, right? That John would center everything on the person and the work of Jesus Christ in his life. Same as Paul. That even inwardly we are seen as obedient to Jesus, right? Not just in some religious rituals, not just in, you know, just practicing certain things, but inwardly we are absolutely, totally convinced that Jesus is Lord of this earth, Lord of this universe. And that all makes a difference in who we are and how we live and how we think and what we do and everything else. It informs everything about us. The process of spiritual formation, in other words, where we walk in obedience to the gospel, allowing ourselves to be purified as he is pure. Observe, you know, ordering, ordering our desire to put it into place with reference to what is good according to God, not according to what I want. The scriptures speak of Jesus as being God incarnate. Not a word you use every day, right? It just means God come in flesh. God come in the form of a man, right? John said in chapter 1 of, the, of, of his gospel account, he said the word, the truth, the absolute truth, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He walked around with us, spent time with us, right? Ate with us, slept next to us, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And also in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. So when you look at Jesus, you see God. Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh. Colossians 2.9 reiterates this truth. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in the bodily form. Colossians 1 corroborates it as well. I love this passage. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. God's buying everything back. He's taking everything back, right? Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood, through his blood shed on the cross, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. I remember those days. I came to Christ when I was 21. I know very clearly what I was like, where I was going, and how Christ knocked me off my horse and changed my life and turned me around. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. In other words, I, Paul, have centered my whole life around this message of Jesus. Now notice how similar that is. All those words are to 1 Corinthians 15. Continue in faith, established and firm. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. 
the gospel that we heard, the one we proclaim to others, the one that we share. And I want to remind you, faith is not some silly belief. It's not just some, like, silly belief in a crazy story. Faith is an active obedience to Jesus due to the fact that he went to the cross and he rose from the grave. And lots and lots of people witnessed it. Dallas Willard said, we must always have both the cross and the resurrection. I wish that guy hadn't died. Man, what a great voice in this world. What a beautiful man, right? But we have to have both the cross and the resurrection. We can't preach one without the other, you know, to ourselves or anybody else. You know, if so, we, we would have a mistaken kind of twisted view of salvation, but both together reflect the present spiritual life of believers, and that is a resurrection life, a rising up life, right? One in which Jesus doesn't just save me from my sin, that's a benefit, that's the truth, but he also transforms me, he changes me from the inside out bringing life and light into all the areas of my life and your life in the here and now, right now. Remember, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. The kingdom come, not fully come yet. Continual spiritual formation under God's grace. We serve under the reign of Christ in his kingdom. It's not a choice as to whether we serve or not as Christians, we serve. Colossians 1 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in to the kingdom of, uh, kingdom of the Son he loves, in, hu- in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Do you know what a priest is? A priest is just simply a bu- bridge builder to God, somebody that introduces another person to the God of the universe and gets the relationship moving. You are all priests in Christ. Amen. All of you are priests in Christ. You have a big job, an important job. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may what? Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the wonderful light. Romans 6.18 states you have been set free from sin that bondage that we lived in before, and we have become slaves to righteousness. We've been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. Wonderfully so. We who claim Jesus, right, know that this gospel is of first importance, not only to us, but everybody in the world out there, right? Because in the gospel story, we see God both speak and act For his glory, but to our benefit. God actually does something. According to the Bible, according to the scriptures, Jesus is God, come to bring us into this wonderful kingdom of light, a a story of first importance to everybody, the whole world. But it also teaches that we killed him. We nailed him to the cross. We did that job. We stuck the spear in his side as humanity together. But the strange thing about this story, the, so, the, the thing that is so surprising about the whole story is that death could not hold him, could it? It really couldn't. 
on this Easter day all those years ago, something amazing happened, right? It was, it was proven that God reigns over all things because he conquered death. He walked out of that grave. It was actually empty. And people witnessed him. And he said, make me something to eat, <laughs> right? Not even our sin could kill him. We couldn't contain him. We couldn't silence him. He loves us enough to go through the most humiliating of deaths possible and come out on the other side still with his arms wide open to embrace us. Those who swung the hammer. It's not just because he loves us. It's not just this fuzzy, feel-good love. This is love with a teeth to it, a love with a bite to it, a love with a strength to it. It's because God is love. It's who he is. He can be no other way. He has to act towards that. It's why all other religious thought or philosophies out there fall short. They are either way too human or they are not human enough. They are marked by petulant, angry gods or systems of thought which only reflect our base nature as humans or, or they don't have that amazing divine spark of love and justice which overcomes all things, even death. If this was first order stuff for Paul, then this is priority number one for the church, for us. Our message isn't primarily generalized religious information about how to have a better life. (laughs) It's not. Jesus isn't some set of principles to make things better for me. This isn't the message of Oprah or Dr. Phil. It's just not. It's not. This gospel isn't primarily about having better marriages or raising resilient children or managing my money better, although the financial piece for university class is going to be great. (laughs) Or even about being a good person. All those things are addressed in the gospel. All those things are made better in obedience to Jesus. But all of that is secondary to the, the core message of Jesus crucified, resurrected, and what that all means to everybody in the world. This isn't a self-help program. Or it's not pop psychology. We don't place Jesus on the shelf along with all the other incomplete, mediocre philosophies of life out there as if we could pick and choose today. How how do I feel? What's going to be best for me today? No. Our focus isn't on the self. It's on Him. It's on Him. We're not asked by God what we think. He didn't come down and say, what do you think is best for you guys? What should I do? Right? He didn't do that. Without asking, God makes the first move. God acts on our behalf. Without ever asking us, he sent his one and only son into this world, in the flesh, to the cross for us. He alone knows what we need and provides it for us for the sake of his glory among all peoples of the earth. We proclaim Jesus crucified and raised up for the glory of God's kingdom here on earth and forevermore. We don't argue about it. We don't, we don't care about proving it to anybody. Take it or leave it. That's the message. Not arrogantly. I'm not saying that. We want you to grasp it. 
But it's not up to us whether or not you receive it, right? This message has no equivalent to it. Nothing in the world comes close to it. We believe it is truth. And here as Christians, we believe it is truth with a capital T. The only truth, the one truth, the gospel truth. As he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And there is only one God in this universe. Our message is first and foremost a declaration of who God is, and that is seen in Jesus Christ. And secondly, what he's done, how he's overcome death by his own death and resurrection. That's our core message. The church bears this 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 very cherished story of God incarnate, crucified and raised up on Easter Sunday. We're not apologetic about it. We're not ashamed of it. We are bold with it, but we are also respectful with it as well. We don't ram it down people's throat. We don't sit out there and, and produce guilt and shame and all that stuff. That's not our job. That's not, that is not even close to it. We just share it in love. We also have received it. And we also realize the importance of sharing it with others, of giving it away, since everyone out there needs Jesus, whether or not they want to admit it or not. It's also not lost on us that Paul says that this message is not only what he's passing on, but what he received. So we we realize that every believer in this world... uh, there's a sense in which we, we must come to faith with open arms and open hearts, right? That we come, in, we come in our poverty, that we come in our need. We come realizing that we need God in our lives, right? We come in our weakness and we receive the ministry of Christ in our hearts. It's the ultimate vocation of the church, the ultimate job of the church to receive Jesus and also to proclaim Jesus. It's the ultimate goal of worship is to receive Jesus and proclaim the gospel of first order importance in this world. God's not out there making chessboards for entertainment, right? Instead, he's made this world and he chose to enter into it at the deepest level possible up to and including taking on human flesh and enduring the stinging loss of death himself. And after lying in his tomb, stone cold dead, he wasn't breathing, his blood wasn't flowing, his heart wasn't pumping. He was stone cold dead for three days. He was raised up to life for us and for his glory. And so let me, I'm going to say this twice. What happened in the world, God is allowed to happen to himself. You wonder about suffering in the world and all that stuff. What happened in the world, God allowed to happen to himself. It's the incarnation and the cross which tells us that God intimately knows our suffering. He's acquainted with it in the most intimate way possible, maybe more so than I even am. I've never gone to the cross myself. And as the incarnation is bound together along with the crucifixion and the resurrection for all of eternity now, we know that what happened to Jesus, that he was raised up on Easter Sunday, can also happen in the world. You can't preach the cross without having the resurrection. 
It's the hope that every feeble and weak thing will be strengthened, that that every broken thing in the world will finally be mended, that every dead thing in the world will finally be raised up to life. And this is part of the beauty and the hope of resurrection, that God's doing his very best work in the, in the, the very worst of places. If you've been around at 6-8 long enough, again, uh, reusing my illustrations because I like them, but <laughs> you would have seen this image, an image made to probably upset the church. I, I've never spoken with the artist, but, and that's him standing next to that picture. <clears throat> but I think he made it to upset the church. Andre Serrano is his name. He's, he, he submersed a, a, a crucifix into a beaker filled with cow's blood and his own urine. And then he took a picture calling it Piss Christ. I know it's church and it's Easter Sunday, but you've heard the word before. Don't get all upset with me. Right? It's a cultural reference. Senator Al D'Amato uh, proceeded at that, that, that year to uh, rip up a copy on the Senate floor. The National Gallery in Australia, probably close to your home back there in Australia, uh, had to close right after its uh, opening the show in 1997 due to two attempts to destroy the image. You can see, I think, if you look closely, the hammer marks in the glass that somebody took a hammer to it. In Time Magazine, Newt Gingrich at the time said that this was prototypical of the cancer that is eating away at our society, and I think he was right. Maybe not in the way that he meant it, I'm not sure. But it does represent the cancer that is eating away at our society. I love this image. Maybe he made it to upset the church, but he made a great gospel image, in my opinion. What's the world coming to, right? How bad can it get out there, right? Story after story in the news reflect the evil of man against man and the sin which permeates our our culture. And in in the end, you ask, where's God? I just read a story in the Wall Street Journal this morning or yesterday uh, about just all the school shootings that we've had over the past decade or whatever, 20 years. It's, it's, it's saddening, isn't it? When, where is he? When, when's he going to come and destroy all this filth? Well, the answer to that is he did, and he is. He did, and he is through that cross and through that empty tomb. He's transforming people. I am much different than I was when I was 21. I was voted most likely to be an assassin in high school, right? I wanted to work for the mob. That was my goal, own my own bar and work for the mob. Amen. That would have been a great life, right? $10,000 a hit. Okay, I'll do it for eight. All right, but no less. That was my goal. Uh, I look a little ragged. Inwardly, I was ragged, man. He is changing. He's transforming people. He's restoring the image in us, which we were originally created to be, as we see in, in, in uh, the Garden of Eden before the fall, one which reflects a God that is love. I don't always reflect it perfectly, but we're trying, right? We're trying. That's the important thing, that we're, we're growing in it. Jesus immersed himself in the blood and urine of humankind, in order to change it from the inside out, to transform it, to redeem it, to reconcile it to himself. He's doing that work today, and he will continue to do that until he returns in full. 
And this is why that Christians can, can endure pain and difficulty and perhaps even expect it and know that we've not been a left, uh, abandoned or left for dead. Because Jesus goes to the extent of immersing himself in it with us. He actually immerses himself in me with all my garbage. It's both so human, but yet so divine at the same time. A unique story with absolutely no equivalent. Test it. There is no equivalent. This is why true believers in Jesus will go the extra mile in justice or in reconciliation with others or in showing mercy in very practical ways because we anticipate life and resurrection of dead things. We, we want that. We see it as possible. Dead relationships, dead situations, hopeless causes, right? When others give up, when they sit down after they've stood firm for a while and they just say, ah, forget it, it's not working, they sit down. Christians see life because of Jesus. We see resurrection. But even when all of our efforts fail, which they often do, since we minister in a world where other people have to respond to Jesus as well, and they often don't, we still have an undying hope resonating within our chest. Because we know that the resurrection of Christ will somehow, even though we don't understand it, will somehow make all things right in the end. Even if we don't see it in the moment, we don't give up. We stand firm. Frederick Buchner, if I say his name correctly, noted resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. Things can always change. And as our signature song for this series, All Things Rise, says, so let all things rise and bless your name. All things made right and new again. That's our hope on Easter Sunday. That's our hope in Jesus. Always. So let me end with the words of Colossians chapter 2. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue, stand firm, keep standing, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness, no matter how bad it gets. See to it that no one, No one, nothing out there takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Remember, there is no equivalent to the gospel message. There is no equivalent to the scriptures in our lives. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. God came in the person of Jesus Christ and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. You've been made new. The old is gone. The new has come. Remember, he is the head over every power and authority. may not seem like it sometimes, but he's doing his work and he's going to complete it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just the truth of your message, the truth of what you did. We thank you that your story, your words, your message, your life, rises above all else as a unique and totally powerful message in, the, in our lives and in this world. We want to be like Paul. We want to have everything that we are 
centered around you and around this message of the gospel. We want to draw our life from it. We want to draw our, our freedom from it. And we want to let it overflow. Romans fifteen thirteen, just that it overflows out to other people all around us, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would well up inside of us and that you would do this work in us and for us that we wouldn't even have to think about being your witness, that it would just come out of us, out of the joy that we have in the gospel. Come, Lord Jesus. Bless us and fill us with your presence. And we thank you for what you did for us.